The locations discussed in this episode are on the traditional lands of the Klamath, Umpqua, Moala, Cascades, Cowlitz, Nisqually, Puyallup, and Yakima peoples. Oregon's Mount Mazama was once one of the largest peaks in the Cascade Range, the mountains running from California to British Columbia that divide the northwest into a wet western half and a dry eastern half. Around 7,000 years ago, Mazama erupted in spectacular fashion, emptying its massive magma chamber and causing the mountain to collapse in on itself. Just as spectacular as the collapsed volcano, known as the caldera, the eruption left behind. Today, the caldera is filled with deep, almost supernaturally blue, water, and is one of the Northwest's best-known natural wonders. Crater Lake National Park was established to preserve this otherworldly landscape, but has become a refuge for, among other things, conifers and the animals that rely on them. The forests on the park's remote western edge are at the southern end of an ecosystem that extends north along the flanks of the Cascades to Mount Rainier in Washington. Like the Puget Lowlands forests we explored in the previous episode, these woods are characterized by western hemlock and western red cedar, joined this time by Pacific silver fir. Known somewhat unimaginatively as Central and Southern Cascades forests, this ecosystem is home to a diverse community of organisms, all of which in some way interact with conifers. Two animals in particular have become famous for their reliance on ancient trees and the area around Crater Lake is the only place in this part of the Cascades where both have survived side by side. The spotted owl may be the most familiar Northwest animal that almost no one has actually seen. This elusiveness is due to their behavior and their habitat. Like most owls, they're active at night and they live in patches of dense forests that are generally not easily accessible. In fact, in this part of the world, they don't just prefer old-growth trees, they require the perpetual shadow and large nesting cavities they provide. This makes them a textbook example of what ecologists call a specialist species, having evolved in lockstep with a particular environment to the point where they can't survive without that environment. It's also made them a flashpoint in disputes over the management of Northwest forests, with conservationists using this endangered species as a legal basis for halting logging of old-growth timber, and with loggers vilifying them as a death knell for industry. The second species found in the forests west of Crater Lake has not stirred up anywhere near the same emotional response as has the spotted owl, but both require the same environment to survive. Fishers are large relatives of weasels that also prefer dense canopies and large trees in which to make their dens. This reliance on old-growth forests, as well as a dense coat that made them a prime target of fur trappers, led to the disappearance of fishers across much of their range, including most of the Cascades, but they managed to hold on in the area around Crater Lake. For both owls and fishers, the conifers of the Cascades forests provide a place to live and raise young as well as a hunting ground. The presence of these trees is necessary for the survival of the animals, but neither animal has a direct positive or negative impact on the trees themselves. Not every connection in these forests is quite so straightforward, though, 
and a site a bit further north has become one of the best places in the world to study the glorious complexity of Cascades forests. The Northwest has long been a natural laboratory for the study of how organisms interact with one another, and field stations across the region have been the birthplace of some of the most important ideas in ecology. One of these field stations lies north of Oregon's Mackenzie River and is set aside for long-term studies of Cascades forests. The conifers of H.J. Andrews' experimental forest are central to these interactions. Their relationship with many organisms mirrors those with spotted owls and fishers. The tree sees no net cost or benefit, while the other organism gains something from the interaction. While many animals fall into this category, far more visible are epiphytes, plants or lichens that, instead of growing in soil, live their lives on the trunks and branches of trees. Epiphytes growing near the tops of these trees may experience very different conditions than those growing near the forest floor. And the wide range of microhabitats in the forest means that epiphyte diversity can be staggering with over a hundred species of epiphytic plants and another hundred species of epiphytic lichen having been identified in Andrews Forest alone. The most familiar of these and the easiest to spot is a light green lichen that looks like a scraggly beard, known widely as Spanish moss. Though confusingly, it's not a moss, it's not from Spain, and it's not even remotely related to the plant of the same name familiar to anyone from the southeast U.S. Many other organisms in the forest benefit from conifers, but at a cost to the trees. Any animal that eats conifer needles falls into this category. My favorite example is the porcupine, a tree-dwelling rodent that thrives in northwest forests that provide food and surprisingly effective cover for an animal that is itself covered in needles. Also harmful to trees are insects that tunnel into live wood, such as the notorious pine borer beetle as are parasites that sap nutrients from trees. Especially relevant this time of year are the many species of mistletoe that specialize in parasitizing conifers. And finally, there are the organisms that form mutually beneficial relationships with conifers. You'd need a shovel, a microscope, and a permit for digging to observe the most important of these organisms, but they are everywhere beneath your feet as you walk through the forests of the Cascades. On, and often within, the roots of conifers and other trees, you'll find symbiotic fungi known as mycorrhizae. Fungi are great at decomposing, breaking down dead organisms and recycling the nutrients in those organisms' bodies. The needles of conifers are factories that harness sunlight to build sugars. The mycorrhizae share the nutrients they release with the conifer hosts, while the trees share some of the sugars they produce providing both organisms with essential ingredients for the chemical reactions that make life possible. So close has the relationship become between conifers and mycorrhizae that many species cannot grow without their fungal partner. Conifers don't stop interacting with their forest communities after death. Standing dead trees, snags, provide living space for many species, such as the Pacific dampwood termite, and food sources for animals like woodpeckers, many of which feed on insects pried from decomposing snags. Fallen trees become nurse logs, such as the one in Seattle's Olympic Sculpture Park discussed in the previous episode. Any remaining wood and bark provide a foothold for ferns, 
young trees, and a wide diversity of invertebrates. As fungi and bacteria decompose in nurse log, the nutrients they release enrich the surrounding soil and become incorporated into the tissues of still-growing plants. All these interactions create a complicated web of relationships that connects conifers to every other living thing in the forest, supports diversity, and provides structure to the ecosystem. The true complexity of these webs becomes clear when you consider that all the relationships I've mentioned so far have been between pairs of species. Each of these species in turn interacts with many others, meaning that a change in behavior or abundance in one species can set off chain reactions that can affect many others, sometimes in surprising ways. To best understand this ripple effect, let's turn to the interaction between conifers and the other iconic organism of the Northwest. If you're driving from the Portland area to Mount Hood, you'll pass the Wildwood Recreation Site. At first glance, it looks like one of the many day-use areas along highways throughout the Northwest. A good spot for a picnic or to stretch your legs during a long drive, but not a destination in and of itself. A stop at Wildwood, though, offers a unique glimpse into the interactions between conifers and the fish that is synonymous with the region. A short walk through the forest brings you to a shelter on the banks of a stream, the only place I know of that provides underwater viewing of spawning grounds for wild Pacific salmon. Thanks to decades of research in nature documentaries, the life cycle of salmon is among the best studied and best known of any animal. Young salmon are born in fresh water, and after growing sufficiently large, they migrate downstream to the ocean. A few years later, they will return to the river of their birth to lay eggs and, for most species, to die. Less familiar is the crucial role played by the conifers towering above the spawning grounds. Salmon, both young and old, need cold water, and the deep shade of a cascade's forest floor is ideal for keeping temperatures low. Beds of gravel are crucial for egg-laying, as smaller sediments such as sand or silt will cover and suffocate them. The root systems of conifers act as anchors that keep such loose sediment in place and out of spawning grounds. Young salmon, known as fry, need pools of water in which to develop, and fallen trees serve as natural dams and provide a place to hide from predators during a particularly vulnerable stage of their lives. This relationship is not a one-way one, either. Salmon spend much of their life at sea, where the nutrient phosphate is common. Phosphate is rare on land, but is vital. Among other things, it's a building block of DNA, itself one of the essential ingredients of life. When salmon return to spawn, then, they're replenishing a badly needed ecological supply. After death, their decomposing bodies fertilize the roots of the conifers around them with nutrients that will in turn be passed on to the organisms that eat or parasitize those trees. A drop in salmon numbers, then, could be felt not just by cedar growing alongside a stream, but by the porcupines that feed on that cedar, and the fishers that prey on them. Likewise, the absence of conifers as a spawning site could lead to fewer fry hatching, affecting salmon-eating animals such as sea lions or orcas living hundreds of miles away in the open ocean. Conifers not only interact indirectly with distant organisms, but the nature of their interactions, particularly with other conifers, changes over time. This can be seen most clearly by observing how forests rebuild and recover after a damaging event, a process known as succession. At the simplest level, 
Studying succession can mean observing the changes that occur following the fall of a single tree. Events such as fires or clear-cutting can remove whole swaths of conifers, allowing larger-scale studies of succession. And in some cases, truly catastrophic events can destroy entire forests. Such events are not as uncommon as you might think, because, like Mount Mazama, all the tallest peaks of the Cascades are volcanoes. The eruption that formed Crater Lake may be the largest in the history of the Cascades, but by far the most well-known occurred when Washington's Mount St. Helens blew its top. More accurately, it blew its side, as a massive landslide directed the 24-megaton blast northwards rather than upwards. May 18, 1980, was a very bad day for anything living in the forest in the Mount St. Helens blast zone, but ecologists immediately realized what a golden opportunity the eruption represented. In an instant, a characteristically complex Cascades forest had been nearly completely wiped out. This gave us an environmental clean slate and a chance to study succession on a scale never before possible. With the exception of a few individual trees that survived the blast, conifers have not been major players in the early stages of succession on the mountain. Instead, the first plant to make a big comeback was lupin, a small flowering species. Lupin has the ability to draw nitrogen, like phosphate, a crucial but limited nutrient, out of the atmosphere and into soil. As soil richness and depth have built up, trees have begun to return. The first of these pioneers were alder, but conifers have made a comeback in the form of Douglas firs. This species is unusual among many Cascades conifers in that it grows very well in direct sunlight meaning that it is generally the first conifer to recolonize deforested areas. Over the decades, as these trees continue to grow, the shade they cast will create the dark conditions that allow later successional trees to sprout and grow. Conifers, though, are organisms whose lifespans are measured in centuries, so succession at Mount St. Helens remains in its early stages. However, you don't need to head too far north to soak in the majesty of a Cascades forest that has had plenty of time to grow. Like Crater Lake, Mount Rainier National Park was set aside to protect a geological wonder, the tallest of the Cascade volcanoes. Also like Crater Lake, it provides a bookend for central and southern Cascades forests. Unlike its southern counterpart, Mount Rainier is home to one of the most accessible stands of old-growth forest anywhere in the Northwest. A short walk from Washington Highway 123 and across a bridge over the Ohanapakash River leads to the Grove of the Patriarchs, a stand of truly massive Douglas firs, cedars, and hemlock. The name may be a bit of a misnomer. All three species produce male and female cones, and thus are matriarchs every bit as much as they are patriarchs. But there are few more impressive examples of what an ancient Cascades forest looks like. The presence of large hemlocks is especially telling. Washington's state tree is the quintessential late successional conifer, growing only once other trees have established a sufficiently dense canopy. The fact that they not only grow in the grove, but that they are immense, shows that these trees have been growing for a very long time. 
Indeed, many are estimated to be over a millennium in age, meaning that these trees are not only contemporaries of you and me, but of Viking explorers, the scholars of the Abbasid Caliphate, and of the Maya of Chichen Itza at its height. forests are home to such titans. Head towards the mountain summit, either by trail or by the switchbacks of Sunrise Road, and not only do the conifers start getting smaller, you'll start seeing very different species, such as subalpine fir and white bark pine. Eventually, trees disappear altogether. These changes in conifer diversity occur as you head up mountains throughout the northwest, and they provide a vital clue as to why some species thrive in some areas and not others. While northwest conifers are at the center of a complex web of species interactions, it is a very different set of interactions, this time with the physical environment, that plays an outsized role in determining which conifers live where. This is especially clear in the Blue Mountains that rise like forested islands out of the grasslands and deserts of eastern Washington and Oregon, and it's to these forests that we'll head next week to explore the close connection between conifers and climate.